Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Jess Karavik, sharing her story of being diagnosed with a chronic pain disorder, vulvodynia. Jess delights in shocking the audience into laughter while talking candidly about this rarely discussed and really important health issue. Stick around after when Jess and I talk through the use of humor to broach serious topics, the nature of chronic illness, and how people with vaginas could be better served by the medical world. But first, let's listen to her story, recorded live at 21 Soho. So in 2018, I was diagnosed with a condition called vulvodynia, which the um, doctor so kindly put it as, um, there is no reason and there is no cure. Um, But what I can prescribe you is some antidepressant pills and some numbing cream. (laughs) So I can either be in excruciating pain or feel nothing at all. So I went with abstinence instead. Um, A lot of people with the condition vulvodynia, it's a chronic pain disorder, A lot of women can't wear tight clothing or sit down without holding an ice pack to their crotch. Um, I have the type where it feels like I've got thrush 90% of the time. And to have sex, well, um, put your indent finger and your thumb together, like this little oval. So uh, my fingertips are my clitoris. Uh, My clit still works, so you may take my Volvo, but you may never take my clitoris. Um, (laughs) Uh, my fingers or my lips and then this bottom part is the entrance to my love canal Um, a penis going there feels like a knife hacking away at my cunt so (laughs) yes there is no reason and there is no cure Uh, um, you know if 15% of men's penises so much as stung when they had sex there'd be a penis pandemic so you know they find a cure (laughs) for ages I was thinking why me I'm a good person I, you know, always used a condom most of the time. Uh, I recycle. Um, And then I thought, maybe, maybe it's because I masturbated from such an early age. Yeah. Um, It was uh, 2003. I was um, 10 years old. And I was watching the erotic sitcom The Worst Week of My Life with Ben Miller. Uh, And there were two um, characters in bed together. And for some reason, that got me incredibly flustered. Um, so I went to my bedroom. I uh, grabbed Mr. Brown Bear. It was clearly creative. It didn't hit me until after I had my first orgasm. Uh, we went to the bathroom together. I locked the door, put the toilet seat down, put the bear on top, and rode it to absolute completion. <laughs> Fireworks. Wow. Oh, my God. What was that? I want to do that again. And I did. I did it all weekend. <laughs> The next day when I went to school, as I was a child, I went up to my best friend at the time, Ashley, and I said, Hey, Ashley. Yeah? If you sit on your bear and move around, it feels really good. (laughs) What? (laughs) Nothing. Is that a bird? That's when I realised I am the only person in the whole entire world that knows about this. It was a secret. Um, And so, you know, naturally, I graduated from my bear to a pile of pillows and then my all-time favourite, the family sofa. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it had a really good plump arm that I could straddle and hold right onto. Yeah, I uh, I hopped around until I found my favourite one. At this point, I was coming fourteen times a day. <laughs> Ouch, yeah. Despite being a masturbating maniac, I didn't actually lose my virginity until I was 18. Uh, the only other sexual experiences I really had was um, taking a 16-year-old boy to my shed and dry humping him. Um, I came, but I was thinking about my sofa. <laughs> about uh, how it felt better, not that I was getting turned on by that plump arm. Uh, I also um, had a girl go down on me in college whilst her girlfriend watched. Um, I distinctly remember I had a really bad haircut the day before and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. <laughs> I was 18 and he was a 26-year-old manager from Nando's with tattoos, a motorcycle, a receding hairline. Yeah. I lost my virginity in a bed he made out of planks of wood um, and his parents were in the next room. I was paranoid I was going to get cystitis if I didn't peep directly before and after yeah. To warm me up, he um, scratched at my clitoris like it was a piece of blue tack he was trying to get off a wall. Um, and then we had penetration. It was uneventful. I thought choosing an experienced older man, uh, you know, would be amazing, but it, but it wasn't. And then I thought, well, is this it? Is this all there is to sex? Just really good furniture. <laughs> we broke up. I did some more sex. I discovered there is more to it than a really good arm. I met a guy on Tinder and I moved out of the family home and moved in with him. Uh, his sofa was shit, but his dick was good. So, yeah. <laughs> And then my mum was selling the family home, so we went back to go and help her move out. Uh, she decided she didn't want to take the sofas with her because they were threaded and one was broken. <laughs> I broke the sofa, it broke my hymen, it's a fair trade. My mum was convinced it wasn't going to fit through the the door, so she handed my boyfriend a saw and told him to cut it off. My boyfriend knew about my uh, affair with the sofa, so I watched him hack away (laughs) at this arm, my old love and my new love colliding in some sick sexual irony. (laughs) The most expensive sex toy I'll ever own cut into. So maybe that's why my vagina's broken. I've maxed out my orgasm loyalty card, and now I must suffer. Well, no, of course I don't really think that. I think we definitely should be talking about our vaginas more. I mean, I definitely suffered in silence before going to the doctor for far too long. So please come and talk to me about your vaginas. Consider me your uh, fanny fairy godmother. (laughs) Uh, I'm still with my boyfriend. My vagina still hurts. My sofa is shit, but the IKEA foot still does the job. Thank you. Jess. No, no, absolutely not. Why can't we giggle? <laughs> so, Jess. <laughs> Alice, yes, this is gold. <laughs> this is real life. <laughs> Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so good to see you. How are you doing and how does it sound to hear your story back after quite a while now? Two years, I think. Yeah, it's wild how open I am talking about my (laughs) masturbating as a child. But yeah, no, it, it actually felt quite nice hearing it back and hearing some things that I forgot that I said. 
and like walking my bear to the toilet which I just like you're on a date yeah <laughs> not that you well, would we know were... that at 10 <laughs> best but... date I ever had <laughs> no I loved it I loved the openness and the candor it's so refreshing mm. and there's so many aspects of this story that are illuminating in so many ways your story is very funny but it also talks about this underlying reality of when something bad happens to us we look for some sort of explanation and I know you're mostly joking like looking to your past to figure out why is this happening to me. But that must have occurred to you, like, why you for something that interferes so much with a critical part of living, a a critical part of pleasure? Like, Mm -hmm. how have you made sense of that? I think it doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. but also life is... There's no reason and no cure. Yeah. (laughs) So unsatisfying. Yeah. I think there's so much to it in terms of, like, I'm on a Facebook group called, I think it's like Volvidinia Support Group. And it's a lot of people from all over the world sort of talking about their experiences and what they're going through. And what's really interesting is that I think there's a lot of misdiagnoses because diagnoses because none of the stories all kind of match up and it feels like some people's experiences might link to a different kind of disorder or chronic pain disorder. But it's kind of just been given a bubble term because some people how they get it doesn't maybe necessarily make this like my story of how I got it so like where I thought it came from is that I had like back-to-back thrush if we're mm. gonna be honest with whoever and I got it treated and I think I over treated my thrush and hypersensitivity to yeah. candida can be one of the causes I mm-hmm. researched this mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you probably know more about my vagina than I do <laughs> um, and so I think what happened was is that I over tried to sort it out so then it kind of the vagina resets and has like a lot of, it's very complicated. And it's th- very self-sustaining most of the time. Yeah. It's a remarkable, remarkable part of the body. Yeah. And I think I kind of had ended up doing too much to it and with not the right advice as well, because I remember talking to my GP. I just, the way I explained it was like, oh, I've got thrush. And instead of asking more questions, he just was like, oh yeah, well, I'll just write you a prescription. And so then I ended up probably over-treating thrush Then maybe it shouldn't have been treated that way. And so then I think that's where maybe some nerve damage has come from. And also, like, I think that I have, like, sciatic pain as well. And I think that it translates to nerve pain. So I feel there are other things in my body that I could adjust that could help me as well. Sure. Because there's, but there's a lot of things like physio, uh, sorry, pelvic floor, therapy some people find that helps them but also over the years I've kind of learned what works for me and what doesn't because I don't know during that like when I spoke true stories whether my partner and I had had sex at that point because we didn't didn't tell us really Jess holding back I know (laughs) the one thing I didn't share (laughs) I think um so we didn't have penetrative sex for two and a half years we yeah we called it outer course that was kind of a thing we would have a lot of outer course and then I think the pandemic helped us because it meant that we had time to like, okay, well, let's just try to see what works. And so when I was prescribed this numbing cream, which is like a numbing gel, the antidepressant pills just didn't work for me. I what is the for- theory about the antidepressant so pills? Because a lot of it they think is um, in your brain and it's your brain telling you that your vagina doesn't want to work. Ooh. So the antidepressant pills they give you are not they don't prescribe them for antidepressant anymore, but they use it. It's kind of like to numb your senses. 
but I I couldn't rationalize numbing my brain for the sake of my vagina. Sure, and some of those antidepressant drugs really there's huge consequences yeah. to other aspects of your yeah. quality of life. So so you went with the numbing cream and yeah, so, skipped the antidepressants. Yeah, because the thing my day to day like my vagina doesn't hurt as much as some other people's. I know, like I read stories where people are like can't do normal things they can't go swimming they can't go out like they can't sit down for long periods of time I'm lucky that I don't really have that I think there is constantly a feeling there and it's not comfortable but it's something that I've learned to sort of live with and I think with having sex now the the ways that we kind of worked out was using the gel to numb and then sort of using a dilator to make sure that I was more comfortable before we had penetrative sex which kind of takes the spontaneity out of things. It kind of like we need to sort of plan what we're going to do and make sure that we have the right lube and the right thing. So the idea of like being thrown against the kitchen cabinet just <laughs> doesn't really work for us. But um, I have to say it sounds so loving and caring yeah. and intimate. I think I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate that I've got such a lovely, supportive fiancé now. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> what a gorgeous you. ring. Thank you. Oh, that is beautiful. It's an emerald for those listening on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gorgeous emerald surrounded by diamonds. It's well, absolutely lovely. <laughs> so, you know, I think there is something in saying that I have a very loving partner who's very supportive, so understanding. And the stories that I read about women who have not very supportive partners, partners that are making them feel like you have to go through pain because I need to have sex. And it's just so brutal. I'm, I'm very, it feels stupid to say that I'm fortunate to have someone that loves me enough to, you know, care about how I'm feeling. But it seems that not everyone has that. I wonder what I would have done and what lengths I would have gone to if I was single. Because I think dating with vulvodynia is not something I've ever done. So it would be really interesting to know. Maybe I would have found myself a cure by now, but because I'm so comfortable in a really great relationship, I felt no need to desperately find a cure because I can't possibly find another partner. Wow, that opens up a whole other topic about what is resting on a woman who's suffering or any person that's suffering from chronic pain, in your case, vulvodynia, like what can happen? What can we do in Mm -hmm. order to address this, I think, imbalance in attending to conditions that affect women only? Mm -hmm. There's so many that are under-researched, understudied, and just not being pushed forward fast enough. There's something about us as women where we seem able to tolerate pain and suffering and discomfort And so therefore we do. And I'm wondering what has to change for this to become unacceptable. There has to be something about our willingness to suffer in silence, especially when the topic is in any way connected to something that could be perceived as shameful Mm -hmm. or us demanding the ability to have pleasant and pain-free sex. Well, I think a lot of it is it needs to be a conversation. People need to talk about it more because since telling my story, people have gone, oh, I know someone who's got that or that makes sense. My friend was talking about how they're feeling a certain way and I'll tell them to look that up because there's something like one in four women have a chronic pain there or maybe a disorder, whether it's consistent thrush or BV or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it is a thing that people just don't talk about enough. I feel so grateful to you for talking about it so openly, so candidly, so funnily, and just putting it out there and also offering yourself as a conversation partner because that is what has to happen. Mm -hmm. We have to just start the conversation. And I think 
people come up to me after I've said this story a couple of times and have told me what they used as their child masturbating. (laughs) (laughs) This part made me laugh because I was so clueless as a young person. Like you were quite advanced compared to me. (laughs) I was like, did you ever read the Judy Bloom book? Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. Was this of your generation at all? I didn't read it, but I, I know of it. In the story, Margaret talks about like her special spot. And I read that book multiple times. And I'm like, where is it? And I'm trying to figure out where it was. And I was like, is it behind her ear? Like, where is it? I just had no idea what she was talking about or where it was located. And it took me quite a while to catch up. So 10. Wow. Yeah. I mean, pretty horny. Um, (laughs) Maybe there is sort of like more comedy about it as well, because I think that's what reaches people is laughing about something because where there is tragedy there is humor and I think maybe that is where the conversation needs to begin absolutely and plus when you allow it to be funny there's an element of access that might not be there if you were just telling a purely straight or dramatic tale (laughs) the trials and tribulations of my lips yeah (laughs) but if you were just telling a straight version of your story without the humor I think it's harder for people to engage because I think they can shut down because among other things, it's quite depressing. Like stories of chronic pain are not fun. The fact that you make it funny actually creates like just this sense of like relief and release that, oh, someone's talking about this thing that is so difficult. And you said at various times, like statistically, there are way more than just you in any given room of 100 or 200 people that are suffering in this way. I know people that I know, friends of mine came up to me and said, what Jess was talking about, that's me. And I just felt for them, but Mm. they had no reason and no way to bring that up to me prior. But now I know something kind of important about what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I think that just opens the door in a way that's really helpful. I think that's it is we need to speak to each other more. And I'll know that there'll be people that won't feel like they can even tell their partner or feel really shameful that there's something wrong with them. You know, like I desperately want to be able to have sex whenever I want, but that doesn't really work for me and my partner because it doesn't really work for me. But we will find our ways of doing it. I mean, even last night we had planned to have sex and then I forgot that I didn't have this specific loop, which is good for me. So we just had classic outer course and <laughs> that was fine because we're in a rhythm now and we understand each other when we've been together for eight years. So he knows what I need. I know what he needs and it doesn't have to be a penetrative sex. That's fine. But when we want to do it, we'll make that happen. And as I say, the spontaneity isn't there, but... But it sounds pretty lovely. And I'm wondering what came first, like the communication skill or the vulvodynia, like what drove what in terms of that relationship? Relationship, or did you two just start as able to connect and talk to each other? When I kept having this like back-to-back thrush, we wouldn't have sex for a while. And then we started having sex again and then I got thrush again. And it was like, maybe you have thrush and you're giving it back to me. And so we kind of stopped for a while. Then I went to go and visit the doctor. And when she diagnosed me, it was kind of like an allergic reaction. She looked at my vagina and said, you're healthy. I've had a smear test and they've said there's no abnormal cells. So there's nothing additional. But it's kind of like when she touched sort of the skin around the vulva, it started to swell. It was like when you get like an allergic reaction. And so that's how that diagnosis happened. It was just, I guess for him, it was always like no question. And actually... It wouldn't turn him on having sex with me, knowing that I was in pain. Oh, That wouldn't be interesting for him. I think the point that you made about 
us not talking enough about our bodies is a really important one. And frankly, our doctors not always knowing everything about the proper way to treat various understudied conditions. I met a friend at a women's retreat and she gave me the most important lesson. This is my public service announcement for this podcast. The most important thing she told me was to try hard. If there is no medical condition that has to be addressed or treated, if you're not suffering in that manner, then it can be incredibly helpful to avoid all chemicals and other invasive products that are marketed in, I think, sinister ways, preying on people's vulnerability around feeling that somehow they're unclean or not fresh enough and introducing chemicals and other artificial products into their vagina that is just not helpful, that all we need is warm water when we're dealing with a typical situation, one that's not medical. Simple messages like that are not universally understood. And then the complex message that you're trying to offer, which is the various causes of a condition like yours are really diverse. And how do you get the proper care if this topic is so under attended to? I think especially with using soaps and things, that's something that was a trial and error thing for myself. Like I would go, you know what, if I use soap, I see myself flaring up or it feels like I've got a thrush again. So I would stop using soap. And also making sure I was wearing like cotton underwear. But that like, that was kind of like my own research and trialing what did and didn't work. And that didn't come from the doctor. There was no pamphlet of like, these are some things that might ease your pain. It was just, here's two things that we kind of prescribe for people with what you've got. And has the internet been helpful? It must be to connect with other women and compare notes and figure out possible solutions or yeah. ways of taking care of yourself. I'd say it's helpful, but also the internet is a scary place as sure. well. There is no, this is the cure and this is what you should do. End of Facebook group. There isn't that. It's everyone has their own things that are going on. You know, you see posts from women that they are at like the end of their tether with it. And they they don't even want to be here anymore because they're causing so much pain. And mm. it's it's awful and it's horrible. Terrible. And it's like a lot of it is because the right people aren't listening and the people aren't talking about it. In the UK, we don't have enough, I think, resources without going private to have your vagina looked at every single year. When I think in America, it seems to be very different. I always hear mm-hmm. Americans talk about their... OBGYN. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very regular thing, <laughs> but, for better or for worse. <laughs> and like that happens really regularly, but that's not really what it's like in the UK. It's kind of every five years you get a smear test and that's it, which seems, especially in a time where a lot of people are experiencing things like cervical cancer and loads of things going on the side of that, it does every five years feel like enough time to be properly looked after and checked. And we need to teach our children better as well having that conversation and taking away shame from masturbating and all those types of things needs to be much better and that starts from at home and how you talk about your private parts with your children and then also at school and there's just a lot of conversation that doesn't happen that should happen and maybe things would get done and people would be in less pain as well well because i think that if we were in touch and coordinated and finding power in numbers, maybe some of these issues could change, starting with women feeling empowered that they're not alone. That I mean, the numbers are startling, up to 16% of women mm. suffering from this condition at some point in their life. But I do know that it can 
resolve itself for some women. And I so hope that is your story at Me some too. point. Yeah. <laughs> so Jess, you have such amazing comic timing. I've seen you do such fantastic sketch comedy. You're also like sharing such a personal tale here by letting us in to a very, very personal aspect of your life. How do those two worlds meld for you? I think I, you know, I want to take this story and expand it, make it longer do maybe like an hour show just open up that conversation I think even today I was just talking about the more serious parts of it as well and having that as a platform and doing something like the Edinburgh Festival doing my Fleabag Phoebe Waller-Bridge version of the show it's a really good stepping stone I think as well of just opening the conversation when I think about your style of comedy and your style of storytelling It's so open. It's almost like you're gleefully sharing us, like the good, the bad, the difficult, the celebratory. Like, is that a deliberate choice or did that just, is that just how it happened, how it came out? I think I like to shock people, I guess. I think there's something fun about catching people off guard because I know it's relatable Mm -hmm. and I know that people, everyone has done something that they maybe wouldn't be so confident as myself to share it on stage But they know that I know that they know that that I know that they've done (laughs) something. And so I think that's really, I enjoyed that bit. And I think that it is, it's being a bit brave, I guess, but it's so brave, so courageous and a huge gift. Like what your, your willingness to say aloud, as you say, what everyone has something they can relate to is just so refreshing and generous, really. It has been such a pleasure to hear your story again and talk to you more about it and the backstory and catching us up on your life and your work and your comedy and where you're going next. So thank you so much for sharing it all with us. Thank you. I've already enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.